Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So if you would, please grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of James, where we begin our study in this wonderful book this morning. And I'll be reading James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, before Pastor Bob comes up. James 1, 1 through 18. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits." Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Well, this morning we get the opportunity to begin a, a new study. So we finished our study of the book of Acts um, in the middle of August, and then we spent two weeks looking at sanctification, being set apart in order to be set apart. And moving into then the book of James, if you were here um, back in 2020, um, during the midst of COVID, we began a study on the book of Proverbs, and we talked about it being um, studying some pearls from Proverbs. And uh, James is referred to as the New Testament Proverbs. Um, there is much wisdom, wisdom given in this book. And it's exciting when you begin to realize who it was that actually wrote this and what it is that he's actually stating. This book was in much debate whether it would be a part of the canon, part of what you have as the Bible. There was a, a large grouping for a while that didn't want it to be in this book because there's a lot in it that makes it sound like it's about works, and it is. But the reality is that we'll, when we finally come to James chapter 2, we're going to see the statement, and that is that faith without 
works is dead. And the whole idea of the book then is we're going to see in just a, uh, say a few moments, but you know what that means, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, a few, uh, quite a few moments before we get there. And, uh, but the whole idea of this book, the theme of the book is, is really about then living out what you believe, what you say you believe, living in then the wisdom of God. Now, this book is written, uh, the, considered to be the earliest of the books that we have, New Testament books that were written. Um, it was written probably only about 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ. Okay, So assuming that Jesus died somewhere to 29 to 33 AD, I hold to 29. You can hold to whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. But basically the, the idea is that the, the gauge between 29 and 33, this was written then in the 40s, Okay, um, only about 15 to 20 years um, after, after Jesus died. The next one after that is considered to be the book of Galatians, which was written in approximately 49 AD by Paul. So it's important for us to think about what was going on while a book was being written. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Does that make sense? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. So today we're going to be looking at verse 1 and then verses 17 and 18 as we consider who the author is, who the audience is, and then what was the purpose, the theme in writing this book. So right off the bat, we want to talk about the author. Okay, so in the Greek, what we're told, it was Jacobus, okay? Jacobus is the one who wrote that. Um, if we take that to its Hebrew equivalent, that's Yaakov, okay? So bringing that back over into the Greek, it's Yaakos, Jacob, okay? And so, but what you see in your Bible is what? James. You don't see Jacob, because if you take that Greek and you bring that over, it clearly Jacobus is who? Yaakov is Jacob. That's who wrote it, Jacob. So you ask yourself the question then, where did we get James? Where did he get James from? Okay. Well, note that I have two Greek names up here. Okay. So in this book, it's Jacobus um, who is defined as, as, as writing it. Um, if you do a search on this, you know, you'd paint by the numbers, right? And you, you do the Esword or the Blue Letter Bible search on that. You're going to find out, and you're going to do the related search. You'll find that Jacobus is then built upon Jacob, okay? And you do the search on those. What you're going to find out is that Jacob, the, the Greek part, okay? The Greek part of it. So this is the Hebrew, Jacob, okay? But the, the, the Greek word of it, that is generally set aside for the Old Testament. Jacob. So anybody from an Old Testament perspective is called Yaakov. But anybody in the New Testament, so James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, he is referred to as Jacobus too. His name actually was Jacob as well. So I want you to think about this. James wasn't a good Jewish name. Jacob was. That's what they were called. Okay. So how did we get to James? Well, because you have the S at the end, you begin to have this derivation going from then Greek into Latin, into French, into English. Okay? I'm not going to bore you with all the, the etymology details. Okay? But it's fun as you go through it, and you see how that all comes together. And it's John Wycliffe in the 1300s. Okay? So um, you may have heard that it was King James who wanted to put his name in there. That's not really true. I've kind of shared that at different times or whatever. But my research, I realized it's not true. John Wycliffe is the first person in the 1300s who put it into the English language. 
okay? And so he refers to them as Hamies, okay? Because it comes from G-E-M-M-E-S on the French end. You bring that into English, and so it becomes James from the Gamus, okay? Anyways, don't worry about all that. Otherwise, just know that's where it comes from, okay? So we refer to him as James in our, in our culture. But really, he is who? Jacob. You need to understand that, okay? It's a good Jewish name, okay? And so it's important at that moment. So that's his name. His identity. He's the stepbrother of Jesus. Now, I'm putting that out there right away. But how do we know that? How do we know that he wasn't the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee? What happened to, to Jacob or James, who was the brother of Yachanan? He got his head chopped off. Yeah, he wasn't around. <laughs> so it could have been him, but yeah, why did that stop him? Anyways, yeah, yeah. Anyways so probably not him, right? Okay, and so we have then these other things. So we have in Matthew 13... Okay, I'm not going to go through this because I, I go quick through here because I really want to spend my time on the theme, okay? So, so I'm flying through this stuff because I don't want to spend... And I told Eddie yesterday, I said, I need to work on not having rabbit trails. So, so Matthew 13 and uh, Mark 15, you can go and you can look at those, okay? That's where we see that Mary had other sons, and he's named amongst a group of brothers, all with good Jewish names, Okay? Um, all with good Jewish names. And then we go to Galatians 1, and I do want to look at some of these so that we have this background. So go to Galatians 1 um, with me, okay? It used to be in my Bible. There we go, Galatians 1. And we want to look at verses 18 and 19. Paul saying, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James. What to say then? The Lord's brother. Okay. So when, when, we, when, we, when we talked about Romanism in Sunday school, Roman Catholicism, but Romanism, um, probably about a month or two ago now, um, and they want to deny that Mary had other children. I mean, even the Apostle Paul is declaring that, okay? So he refers then to this James as being the, um, the brother of the Lord. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, which isn't very far off, okay? Because this is important as well. Um, because if, you were, if we went to the passage in Matthew and the passage in Mark, from the passage in Matthew, what would we find out about um, um, James, if you would, and his brothers in their relationship with Jesus? Does anybody remember that? Say it again. They scoffed at him. That's exactly right. Okay. In fact, they were there to take him away because they thought that he was gone crazy. Yeah. Okay. So they didn't believe. Even his own brothers. It's really kind of interesting. His own brothers. Could you imagine growing up with God in the flesh? Do you think he was ever did anything wrong? Yeah. 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 He didn't. Wouldn't it? I mean, I know my brother was like the captain of the tennis team, co-captain of the football team. He was the salutatorian of the high school that I was in, and he was my older brother. And I walked in his shadow. I mean, he wasn't Jesus, but I get that. Okay. Could you imagine walking in Jesus's shadow? Okay. So they didn't like him so much. Okay. And so, so, so here it is. Though we read immediately that this guy is the, the Lord's brother. What happens? Well, First Corinthians 15, right? So. Um, verses 3 to 8, it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was 
rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen. He was seen by Cephas, a good Jewish name. Who is that? Peter. Okay. He was seen by Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. It's kind of interesting, kind of fun, that God had a plan, God had a purpose for James, the brother, stepbrother of Jesus. And that when Jesus, think about it, Jesus comes back, he's, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, right? And he comes back and he's seeing people. One of the people specifically, individually, that he goes to see is his stepbrother. Isn't that kind of cool? Do you, can you, I don't know, I, I could care if I go too far in my rabbit trail. But, but I just, I love thinking about this stuff. Could you imagine, wouldn't you love them in a fly? And, and seeing that, 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 that conversation was going on? Hey, James, how are you? Uh, uh, not, don't you wonder how many ahs <laughs> happened? You're real. This is really, you really are. I mean, I heard that you were like, but this is really, yeah, I, I really am. It, I really am that guy. I don't know how it all played out, but all I know is that James goes from being a scoffer to a what? To a believer. And not just a believer, but the next little set that we're going to look at real quick here is that, so back to Galatians chapter 2, right? What do we read in Galatians 1? That Paul, when he went to Jerusalem, he saw Peter, right? And he saw nobody else except for who? James. So it tells you that James is, is somebody, right? In Galatians chapter 2, we read beginning at verse 9. It says, um, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be what? Pillars. Perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me in Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Down verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So apparently James now has what? Pretty good authority. Say again? Leadership role. Leader, a leadership role. And that's what we read then in these passages in Acts 12. He becomes the chief elder of the church of Jerusalem. Remember when we went through the book of Acts, we get to Acts 15, that's the Jerusalem council, right? Peter declares his stuff, Right? Paul declares this stuff, you know, um, Barnabas is talking, everybody's talking, and then what, how does it conclude? How does the Jerusalem council conclude? Anybody remember? James writes a letter, but first James stands up. So James stands up, and he summarizes everything. He's the guy in the whole council who defines everything. We've heard what Peter has said. Da, 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 da. So it seems good to me that we write this letter. And he's the one who then brings up what the Gentiles ought to do and all this other kind of stuff. And then when he declares it, it seems right to everybody else, and so they write the letter. James, at this moment then, becomes, think about this, he's the chief elder. Of all the apostles that are there who walked with, with Christ on the earth, the guy who is summarizing and the guy who is defining what the church ought to do is the guy who was a few years earlier the scoffer. Isn't it kind of cool? Now that's exciting because it leads us to this next part. And that is, he could give himself a lot of different titles. James, 
the chief elder of the church of Jerusalem. James, the brother of the Lord. But what does he call himself? The slave. He calls himself a slave. He calls himself a bondservant. A doulos was someone who was owned by someone else. He didn't have his own rights. He didn't have his own abilities. Okay, so you can look the passages up that are there. Okay, but I want to do real quickly a contrast because there's other words that he could have chosen. He could have chosen that he was a steward. We're called to be stewards of the word of God. So he could have called himself an oikonomos, uh, the ruler of the house, if you would. An oikonomos was one who would serve in the house and he was over the affairs of the house. And we're told to be those things with the word of God. He could have declared himself as that, that he was a steward, that, that Christ had made him a steward. Now, what's the difference? A steward could come and go. Okay? So Chlisa was the steward of Herod's house. His wife, Joanna, was the one who helped provide financially for, for Christ's ministry. Okay? So, so you have an oikonomos. He could have been an ergates. What's an ergates? An ergates is a laborer. And so we're told in Luke 10... Verse 7, a laborer is worthy of his hire. Okay? So an ergates was a laborer, a worker, and where there's soon ergates as well, like ones who work together with. Okay? And then there's the gay ergates um, as well that's in there. You have that on your sermon note sheet, some references for a gay ergates as well. Um, and a gay ergates is what is translated as a husbandman or vineyardman, okay? someone who's working the land. So a, a laborer, an ergates, we... So think about it, if you, if you know physics at all, or if you do an erg, an erg, an erg is a unit of measure for what? Work. He's a ergates. He's a worker, okay? And so he could have called himself an ergates. He's a laborer for the Lord. But then again, that would refer to the fact that he's getting what? Potentially paid for this. But he's not getting paid for this, okay? He could have called himself a diakonos. What word do we get from diakonos? Deacon. That's a misnomer, bad... I wish they would have never done that, because a, a deacon, a diakonos, is a servant, is a minister, okay? But again, a diakonos could come and go. Now, the reality is a slave could function as a oikonomos. Do you know any slaves who functioned as an oikonomos, as a steward? You do. You're just not thinking about it. Ah, good, Joseph. That's exactly right. In the Old Testament, now that's not a Greek word, it's in the Hebrew end of it, but the reality is that Joseph was a slave, but he functioned as, as uh, Potiphar's oikonomos. He functioned as his steward. So the same thing with as a laborer. Clearly, slaves could be what? <laughs> Laborers, right? They, they work all the time. Okay? Or they actually could want to be a steward or I mean, not steward, a, a servant, a minister in the house. Okay? So they could be doing that. But if you were that specifically, you weren't necessarily a doulos. Does that make sense? James wants you to know one thing about him. He's a nobody. He's a slave. He's not taking who he is, his, his, his family name, if you would, and using it to his advantage. Um, I appreciate um, when my kids don't try to think that they're special because they are my kids. Um, one of them, how you share this nicely, um, has moved a, a slight distance away, but a decent distance away, but not far enough away. I mean, most of you know that we've been very involved with the homeschool community as well, okay? And so there is some, anyways, whatever. But 
so he moves a distance away so he can be out from underneath that family thing, right? And he gets there, and instantly in the, the one church they go to, and they go, oh, are you Bob Marsh's kid? Anyways, and so one of the things he's struggling with, and not just struggling, struggling, but he wants to be held accountable, and he wants to be known by who he is, not by his family. It's one of the things I appreciate about James's statement here. I'm a bond slave. He doesn't want to be known necessarily as the stepbrother of Jesus. And he doesn't want to be known as going down in history and I'm not, not writing this letter because I am the chief elder of the church. I'm a bond slave. And I have to ask myself that question as I ask, so it's like sharing wealth, right? Am I really, do I really consider myself as a slave, a bond slave, owned by God for his purposes? Or do you see yourself in one of these other categories? I'm willing to be the steward of God. I'm willing to be a laborer for God. I'm willing to be a minister for God. But I'm not a slave of God. In the end, it's going to be my job, my, my, my desire over his desire. I mean, if God wants to send me to the wrong spot, then I have to what? Trump God. But if you're really a doulos, if you're really a bond slave of Jesus Christ, then what do you do? Say it again. Submit. That's exactly right. And it's not even at, at that moment, I was talking to someone recently, you get to the mindset where I don't have to submit. Because my will is not, so put it this way, his will is my will. I don't have a will apart from his will. If I become a slave, it's not like I've got plans for the day. He has plans for my day. You're going to see how this plays out in the rest of this book when we get to chapter 4, and, and we say, not my will, right? But don't say what you're going to do tomorrow, but rather say if the Lord what? No. The Lord wills, right. Why? Because I'm just a slave. I can't tell you what I'm going to do because he's got plans for me. He just may not have told me what it was. James gets it. James was probably walking through his life thinking he had it all figured out. And Jesus entered into his life, maybe 1 Corinthians 15. And all the plans that he had for his life, what? Instantly changed. My challenge to you, more than anything else, as we get into the rest of the theme, because the rest of the theme is meaningless if you don't get this part, is if you're not a doulos of Jesus Christ, if you're not a bond slave, become the bond slave of Jesus Christ. You won't regret it. So, the author, the audience. Who's the audience? Well, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. Well, we know that from Acts chapter 8, okay, that Acts 8.1, that because of Saul of Tarsus bringing the persecution to the church, that the church what? Scattered, okay? And so Peter, as well, in 1 Peter 1, says he was writing to the, to the, um, to the peoples that were scattered, the diaspora, right, amongst all the other the, the Gentile cities that were there. So, so I, want, I want you to realize here that as I got a Jewish man with a good Jewish name, Jacob, right? Writing to who? 
a bunch of Jews. Do you remember what we read from Galatians 2? I didn't make a big deal about it then. But when Paul was writing in Galatians chapter 2 about Peter and John and James seeming to be pillars, right? That two verses later, he said that he had to rebuke Peter to his face. Why? Why did he have to rebuke Peter? Say it again. No, well, yes, but why specifically? What happened? Okay, keep going with the drug. He, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Why? No, no, no. I mean, yes, 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 but that's not why at that moment, because he had been doing it. He had been, he had been eating with the Gentiles. Ah, some men came from James. Judaizers. But where did they come from? From James. Do you need to understand, James is a very, 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 can you put a couple other varies there? Jewish man. And he loves the law, then, the Torah. Do you understand? And so when, don't, we're, we're like 21st century Christians in America. We have no clue. Okay? But you got to have the clue. You've you got to bring that out there. Okay? And you, so as we come through this, you've got to have that understanding, because we're going to talk about the perfect law of liberty. We're going to talk about what the synagogue practice was and how the Jewish individuals, came, or the Jewish, the, the rich people came in and how they were given preference. And we're going to just talk about things that are Jewish as we come through this. They're clearly applications to us. So I'm not saying it's a, a book that doesn't apply to us. It applies to us massively like the book of Proverbs does. But again, if you don't understand where the book of Proverbs is written and why it's written and how it's written, you miss a whole lot of them. Do you understand what the applications are? So I've got this Jewish guy writing to a Jewish audience, and he finds this very important. So remember, this is only about 15 years after the death of Jesus. They're already facing persecution, and he's writing not only to encourage them, because when you read this book, you don't really find necessarily a whole lot of what? Encouragement from that perspective, but he's really kicking them in the derriere, right, and telling them to live it out, live it out. Now's when you find out whether you are Real. How you live it out is going to reveal if you're really real. It's kind of what we talked about with the sanctification thing. It's a form of encouragement. It's a form of encouragement. It is, yeah. It's more exhortation, you know, that he's doing that rah-rah. So that leads us in then to the theme. Now, straight off the bat, free advertise or uh, what do you call it? Not free advertising, but uh, uh, putting it out there. This is where I'm at. So as I read the book, um, full disclosure. As I read the book, okay, this is where Bob comes at, okay? And so Bob comes down that I'm supposed to be retaining a focus upon God in the midst of the affairs of the world. Boom. That's where it comes out. So I, 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 it seems it's a little bit longer, but I'm still bringing it down in my thought processes, and I say it's the application of the wisdom of God in our life of faith as the first fruits of God, okay? Because now where, where am I getting that from? I'm getting it actually from these two verses that we're going to be talking about, verse 17 and verse 18, right? And so I am then the first fruits of his creatures. He created me for a purpose. There's a reason why he's done this, and he's given me good gifts to do these things. And so now I've got to be able to live this out. So bringing that all down, boiling it down is then the title of the series, Living in the Wisdom of God. That's what I think is going on in the book of James. So he has in his mind a whole lot of the Proverbs and other teachings from the Old Covenant, and he's bringing those and applying those, if you would, to the church. Does that make sense? 
How does all this stuff that we know play out in the world that we're living right now? And I think this is kind of fun because that's us trying to take the Bible and applying it what? To our culture today. That's what James was doing for them right then. Small little message, but how am I going to take what I know from the Old Covenant, from God's Word, and how am I going to apply it to our, our day today? For them, so 2,000 years ago. All right. So what do I see? It's all about God. So the first thing I need to do from these two verses is I need to understand who God is. Who is he? Well, the first thing he is, he's the father of lights. So I need to ask myself the question quickly, and that is, who are the, or what are the lights? Yeah, he's the father of lights, so what's the lights? The three options, okay? Biblically, I believe three options, okay? So first of all, Genesis 1, 14 to 16 is the fourth day of creation when he created the the lights, right? He created a, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He had a greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then there were the, the other stars that he put into the heavens in order to give us direction and be able to help us to tell the signs and the seasons and those things, right? Um, Psalm 136.7, uh, the, the psalmist writes to him who made the great lights, okay? So there's this understanding as we come through these in Ezekiel and then in Zechariah that, the, that God is the one who placed the lights in the heavens, Okay, he is the father of light. So, potentially, he's the father or the creator of the stars. Okay, that's an option. Secondly, we get from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says to the, to the believers in Philippi, now this is kind of fun because he's talking to Gentiles, Jews as well, but a Jewish-Gentile gathering. He says, Do all things without complaining and murmuring, that you may be blameless and harmless as sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom we shine as lights. In the world, holding forth the word of life that we that I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain, neither labored in vain, right? And so Paul encourages them to be to be lights in the world. So God could be the father of the saints. You could take that and say that when he says he's the father of lights, that he's the father of stars, or the creator of stars, or he's the father of the saints. Or literally, it could wind up being Israel itself. In these passages, we see that right off the bat that God spoke to Abram. Avram, before he become Avrahim, right? And he said to him, look up into the stars, right? And your descendants will be that many, okay? And so there's a, like a, a picture, an analogy, that the descendants of Israel would be like the lights in the stars. Well, then he goes on, clearly uh, stating that as well, here you are today as the stars of heaven. But Jeremiah then even gives that a little bit more. It says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I, will I multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and Levites who minister to me. So that he is then the God of the Jews. I opt for the first one. Because when it talks about the, all, every good gift and every perfect gift, and we'll come back to those in a moment, um, come down from above, okay? There's the idea in my brain that talking about God is in his what? In the heavens. So I take it as the, the, he's the creator of the stars. You can take it however you want to. Nice applications that are coming out of that, okay? But he's, he's the creator. That's who we're talking about, that the Father of Lights does these things for us, okay? And so what do we know about him as well? There is no variation or shadow of turning, which means that he is unchangeable. He is immutable, and he is faithful, okay? Again, phenomenal terms, um, describing who God is. You don't have to worry about whether he's going to be different tomorrow than he is today, right? So we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. Okay? Psalm 89. Turn with me to Psalm 89. This is about um, Yahweh's covenant with David. And it's, there's a lot of important passages in the scriptures. Um, but honestly, this is probably within my top 25 passages. Um, I'm making that up on the spot right now. But I'm, I'm trying to think how many there are. But this is really, what I'm trying to tell you is that this one is what? Really important to me. Okay? Um, there's a whole lot about God that rides on this thing. Okay? And so for me, there's a lot of other things that are not based upon me, not based upon theology, not based upon based upon who God is. And I come back to this passage um, many times because this is a definition of who God is and God's declaring who he is through this passage. So I'm going to begin in verse 28. My chesed, and so this is another one of these passages, David, where there's going to be the blurring of chesed, right? My mercy. But it's, it's not his rachum, which is my consolation kind of, you know, comfort, you know, it's, no, this is my chesed, and chesed is the faithful loving kindness of God to the objects of his covenant, okay? So chesed is a huge term. Yahweh declares over and over again that he's chesed and met. he's faithful and he's true, okay? And so right now he says then, my chesed I will keep with him, that is David, forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my Torah, my law, and do not walk in my, my, my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep, do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my chesed, again, so before it was mercy, now it's loving kindness. Nevertheless, my chesed, I will not utterly take from him, nor will I allow my amuna, my, amuna, my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor what? Nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and like the faithful witness in the sky. Do you get the profoundness of what Yahweh just declared? If David does not come back to rule, or the seed of David, if you would, come back to rule, then what did God do? He lied. What if he says, well, I'll do it through this new thing called the church. What did he do? He changed it. He altered it. But God says, I won't what? I won't alter it. I won't change it. And it's based, because once I have sworn by my what? No, my holiness. We talked about that with sanctification, right? That's the concept of holy, my chadesh, right? That the reality is that he is set apart, he is set apart, he is set apart. Woe is me. I have sworn once by my set apartness. If he alters it, if he changes it, if he deletes it, He's a liar, and he really isn't set apart, set apart, set apart. You don't know you're going to heaven. Well, he said so. No, I'm sorry. If, it's not, if he doesn't hold his word to Israel and to David, he's not, you don't know he's going to hold his word to you. He's a capricious God, but he's not. 
He's never changing. Malachi says, for I am Yahweh, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. <laughs> because if I was a capricious God, Israel would be gone. But because I do not change. O Yahav. Isn't it kind of neat that the writer of this book is who? Yahav, you know? Good Jewish name. But it's because I don't change, Yahav, that you're still here. How cool is that? Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the immutability of God. And he talks about, again, about how God uses his holiness. Because there was nothing else that he could swear by, so he swears by himself. Did you ever think about that? I mean, before Genesis 1-1, what was there? God. It's just God. I mean, who are we to challenge God? God's capricious. Really? And you're the capricious individual talking about a capricious God. I mean, that does, I mean how, how does I, whatever. Anyways, he is immutable and faithful. There is no variation nor even a shadow of a turning. Now, what's fun about variation, shadow, turning, the words in the Greek that are used there, it's the only time they're used in the Greek or in the New Testament. I mean, not just together, just it's the only time that that word for variation is used. It's the only time that that word for shadow is used. It's the only time that word for turning is used. Okay? But you can go out into classic Greek and you can kind of see what those words mean. But bringing them all together, bringing them all together, lets you know that God doesn't what? He doesn't change. Not even a little bit. The indigo doesn't turn into royal blue. You go and say, oh, it's still blue. You know, it's still, no, it doesn't happen that way. God is the same. There is no gray area, if you would, to God. His justice doesn't change. He is then, also we see, the gift giver, which leads us into our final point, and that is understanding what God does. He gives gifts. What, what kind of gifts did he give? First of all, we're told he gives good gifts. Literally, the good there, agathos, is morally good. Okay? There is kalos, and so you have kakos and kalos. Kakos is bad, ugly, evil. Kalos is good, but it's pleasantness kind of good. Agathos, which is used here, is the moral nature of goodness. He gives you morally good gifts. The word for gift here, they're kind of related with the next word, but they're going to be a difference here. You're going to see it, okay? This is just a generic gift, okay? Just a generic gift. So I'm going to give you something or whatever, not because I'm the pastor, just because I'm your friend. And, and I say to, to, to Rodney, hey, buddy, I want you to have my... Uh, my, my cell phone. Now, that really wouldn't be a morally good gift. But anyways, um, but it would be a gift, right? And so that's kind of the idea of it. But he gives us morally good gifts. So Romans 8, 28, we had seen that as we go through it. Oh, there we go. Have that thought that came up automatically. That we know that all things work together for what? Morally goodness. So all things work together for good to those who love God. Why? Because God is the one who gives us morally good gifts. So you know that whatever comes into your life, it's going to work out to moral goodness. Why? Because God's the giver of moral good gifts, morally good gifts. Does it make sense? Matthew 7, verse 11. If you, then, being evil, know how to give what? Morally good gifts. 
morally good gifts. Yeah, if you know how to give, how much more so you're what? Your Father who is in heaven, right? Matthew 5, verse 43 to 48. Does anybody know what is stated in that passage? That's where, where, where Jesus talks about how God makes the sun to shine upon the morally good people and also for, on the not-so-morally good people. Then he causes the rain to come on the just and the unjust. And then he ends it in verse 48, okay, by us saying so that we ought to be the same way. So we can be like our, we can be perfect like our Father where? In heaven, the Father of lights. Get it? Isn't that kind of fun? And so, so the whole idea, the themes are coming across here. G, uh, James um, is bringing in even a thought process that he heard from, from his brother, stepbrother, right? Matthew 20, 1 to 16, um, again, talks about this morally good. And so the, the whole passage here is a parable of the, 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 the owner of the vineyard who's hiring people to go out into his fields, right? And he goes back into the town and he sees somebody else, right? And it comes time to, to pay everybody. And so the guys who've been working all day think what? They're going to get paid a whole lot more than these guys are going out, right? But all of a sudden, they start getting paid this what? The same. Yeah. So rather than, than the, the guy only worked an hour getting just a pittance, he gets the same pay as the guy who was working 11 hours. And do you remember how the, the landowner responds to him? It's what you agree to. But are you upset that I am a morally good person, giving morally good gifts to others? So think about that. We're going to get this when we get to the perfect gift. This is really kind of fun, okay? Because do you get upset when you see God lead somebody else to himself and use them in a nice special way that you wished you would have been used at? But God is the one, the giver of what? Every good gift. And so, even to unbelievers, even to unbelievers, okay? So, he's the giver of every perfect gift. Literally, it's a mature bestownment. So, this is our word telos, okay? Jesus on the cross, tetelestai, right? To telestai. It is forever finished, completed, right? Paid for. So, but it means it's forever perfected. It's forever matured. Nothing ever has to happen again, okay? And so this is the same word. This is a mature or complete, perfected bestowment. So we get that from the first one, Mark 15, and the others we're going to show, but very clear here in Mark 15. Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, and he requests the body of Jesus, right? Pilate first finds out whether Jesus really is dead, confirms that Jesus is dead, and then we're told, literally, specifically, that he bestows then the body. He gives the body to Joseph. It's an endowment. It's a bestowment. He wasn't just giving him a gift. Make sense? He was giving him an official, if you would, gift, bestowment. That's the idea of the word. Something from the greater to the lesser, if you would. So, John 4, verse 10, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well says, if you knew the bestowment of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who's talking to you, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'm not going to draw it out of that well. Because <laughs> I got a greater, perfect gift to give you. Isn't this kind of cool? Acts 8, verse 20. Peter's talking to Simon a sorcerer. Simon offered him money in order to be able to get the gift of, of, of laying hands on people and that kind of stuff. 
And Peter says to him, is because you thought that the gift of God might be what? Purchased. And there are people who think that even with the gift of salvation. But he's talking specifically about the, the ability to lay hands on somebody and give them the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And he says, you thought you could get the bestowment of God by buying it. You cannot receive the bestowments of God by paying God off. It just doesn't happen that way. I'll be good enough, God. I'll swap you this. You give me this. God doesn't want it. When God gives gifts, they're always what? Free. Talk about that in a moment. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace. That word freely there actually is, the, is our word for a bestowment. That he gave us his grace as a, a bestowment. It's free. We understood it within the realm of the word. There was nothing that had to be given for the bestowment. When, you, when a, um, an individual gives an endowment to a college, sadly today, we have seen people put a what? A string attached to that. I hate getting things from mission agencies or any place else that says, we need you to give your gifts today because we have a matching fund. And today, and today only, if you give your gift, it will be doubled because it's individual. Really? The individual is only willing to give if somebody else gives? That's an improper endowment. That's not a godly endowment. That's not how God gives. I want you to think about that. I had to mirror my life after the pattern of God. When God gives, he what? He gives freely. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable bestowment, gift. But it's a bestowment from the greater to the lesser. I did nothing to receive it. I do nothing to keep it. He bestows it upon me. 2 Peter 1, 3 to 4. I don't have time to get into all this, but this is so exciting. I mean, go and read the context of this. According to his divine power, he has bestowed on us, given on, to us, all things whereby are given, bestowed unto us, exceeding great and precious promises. One of those is that we can be partakers of the divine nature. I mean, you aren't going to get it on your own, and you're not going to go down to Walmart and buy it. Hey, can I have uh, three of those divine nature products right there? Thank you very much. It's not going to happen. God has to what? Choose to give it to you. Choose to bestow it. And you know what the exciting thing is? He's done that. He's done it. And we as people mock it. And we treat it as a commonplace thing. He's given us the greatest <laughs> gifts that we can ever. Every good, morally good, and perfect bestowment and gift comes down from the Father of lights. With whom? There is no shadow of turning. It looked like a monkey trying to grab a banana in a jar. <laughs> There's lots of things that go through your brain when you're up here, okay? Anyways. <laughs> and, but what an awesome gift. I, I mean, it blows me away every time I think about who I was and who I have been and how much he loves me in spite of me, and what he's done for me. So, last verse. As we understand what God does, how he gives life. Oh, I'm sorry. He gives this next part. Forgot about this. Whoop, I'm getting ahead of myself. He gives life. How does he give life? Well, clearly by his own will. I don't have time to go into all this. Um, but Bulamai is the counsel, his will. Um, first step in translating and understanding a word is to look at how it's used by the same author. 
Okay? And so you can look at James 3.4 and James 4.4, the exact same word is used, and you see the idea that it's the, the, um, the pilot of the ship, he turns the rudder whichever way he desires, okay? that which way he counsels, which way he decides. Okay? But it's his will, it's his pleasure, it's his desire. Okay? Same concept, same, adulterers and adulteresses do not know that friendship with the world is an enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants, counsels, desires to be friends with the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Okay? So how does he do it? He does it by his own counsel. He doesn't come to us and he doesn't ask us how he's going to do this. He just does it by his own counsel. Okay? Um, by then his own word of truth, which we talked about the last couple of weeks as we went through the sanctification process. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, okay? And that we were saved according to the word of truth. So 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's where this comes from. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the scriptures. Do you understand? So how is it that we receive this gift of life that he's offering to us? Through his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, okay? So, so all that's there. So why? Why does he do it? In order that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are new creatures. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so we're supposed to be living then in that. Does anybody know what comes right after that? That the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Therefore, what, what are we supposed to act like? What are we supposed to be? Ambassador. Ambassadors of reconciliation. So because of that, because I'm a new creature, now I'm supposed to do something I wouldn't have done before, and now I'm going to go out and I'm going to re represent him, and I'm going to be an ambassador of reconciliation, trying to draw other people to him. Galatians 6.15 says, Then for Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision reveals anything, but a new creation. And that's what we see as well in Ephesians 4. And part of your, if you were at family camp last week, and you did that, that day's family devotional, the putting off and the putting on, that's what this one was all about as well. Um, oh, sorry, that's John 3. I'll come back to that. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, talking about it, that you used to be like the other Gentiles in the world, walking with a few, in their futility of their mind, the futility of thinking because you were alienated from the life of God, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you are in Christ. And so now putting off those things, you're supposed to put on the new man, which is created after true righteousness and holiness, right? Through the renewing of your mind. Okay, you remember that? John 3, does anybody know what that passage is? So when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at nighttime, and he says, you must, be, you must be born again. You need to be born of the water and born of the Spirit. You must be born again. You need to become new. There's a change in you. You used to be this. You need, used to be walking as part of the flesh, but now you're born from above, and now you need to be walking as one who is living as from above. Again, that's what James is going to go through all this kind of stuff, how it looks in, in this world, okay? So now, bringing back to what I was going to say, um, ending all this, from Matthew 10, it's like, this is Jesus commissioned his disciples, and, um, and he was sending them off two by two to go throughout Israel, and he's telling them how they should act, right? And so he, he makes this statement to them, which I think sums up all this concept about him giving us gifts. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, Cast out demons. Freely, this is our second word, bestowment. Being bestowed, you have received. Now you 
bestow it on others. So i got to ask myself the question, am I doing that? God has given me great gifts. Not necessarily great abilities, but great gifts. The greatest of the gift is what? Salvation. That's exactly right. It's not something I did for myself. He's bestowed it upon me. But he's bestowed it upon me in order that I might turn around and do what? Give it to others. Freely you have been bestowed upon. Freely bestow upon others. It drives me bonkers when I see people trying to sell the word of God. And for $39.99, we'll tell you how you can be saved. Send us a generous gift. And we'll send you this gift in return. I'm glad that God didn't do that for me. Because I'd still be unsaved. I ain't giving you $39.99 sight unseen for what you're going to send me. I don't know where I'm going on that one. My daddy didn't raise no fool. Well, maybe he did. Anyways, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, right? Freely you have received. Freely give. Never, ever think that it's yours and that it came from you and that you then have a right to it. Because who are you? Go all the way back to the beginning. You're a doulos. You're a slave. Get it through your head. When you get it in your mind that that's who you are, then everything belongs to who? The king. I just have the privilege of representing the king. I have the joy of being a herald before the king. The king is coming! The king is coming! Prepare! Prepare! The king is coming! And as I declare it, and as I herald it, as I proclaim it, as I preach it, that's the word for preach. And we're all told to do that. People may think I'm an idiot. It's okay. Because the king is coming. And he desires all men to be saved. He wants everyone to receive the good gifts and the perfect gifts. Do you get it? And he's given them to us in order that we won't hoard them and we won't be selfish with them, but we can turn around and give them to others. So in the end, have you received the good and perfect gift of salvation? If you get nothing else from today, I hope you get it. You've done nothing for it. God wants you to have it all. Have you taken it? Are you living out your faith in the wisdom of God, or are you heeding the words of man? Do you consider yourself a bondservant of God? That's a tough one. Are you desiring to serve Christ in every facet of your life? A bondservant will. Is there then a need to change the way you think, and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are the Most High God. There is no other God but you. And I know that when you breathed into Adam the breath of life, Lord, that you knew what would transpire over the next thousands of years. And that we would walk uh, in that same pattern of sin. And we would be born into sin. And that we would need a Savior, a Redeemer, 
And so you came to be that for us. It was your own counsel, your own will, that determined these things. And you proclaimed it to us. And you shared it with us. And you offered it to us. Just as you did with Adam. Lord, help us to be faithful with the gifts that you've given to us. To not think that they're ours just because we're special. But rather that we would desire to use them for your glory. Truly, freely we received that freely we would give these good and perfect gifts and bestowments that you would receive the glory. In Christ's name, amen.